Well, let's turn back to uh, that section of your Bible that I hope is becoming more familiar in Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3, we've uh, not not paused in this chapter so much, but just we, we've kind of downshifted a bit as we were working through Lamentations chapter 3 because this is really the center of the book quite literally and it's also the center of the book thematically. Um, I was thinking about this and, and one of the fun parts about studying a book like this and maybe you've had this experience in your life if you focused on a particular book that you're studying maybe in a class or maybe just on your own is you start to see new things about the book as you uh, get into it and, and one of the things that I've noticed about Lamentations is it's something of a mirror image, um, if that makes sense. If you think of the center of the book, the first part of the book sort of mirrors the second part of the book. I guess flip that around. The first part of the book kind of mirrors the second half of the book with chapter 3 right in the middle. And you'll see today, if we uh, make our way into chapter 4, how chapter 4 really parallels chapter 2 and then chapter 5 really parallels chapter 1. And so it's kind of a mirror image centered on that middle chapter, chapter 3, which is where we've been. And uh, if, if you're uh, new today or visiting or maybe it's been a while since you've been to Sunday school, welcome. And uh, I'm going to try to get you up to speed here today on the book of Lamentations. As the name implies, the book is a five-chapter poem of the expression of grief. That's what lamentation means. It's the expression of grief. And... Um, Jeremiah, who's writing this, was a prophet. He ministered to the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah, in a season of great disobedience on their behalf. And uh, at the end of Jeremiah's life and ministry, uh, God acted to bring punishment to his people who had refused to repent uh, for, for decades of their own idolatry and sin. And uh, God chose to punish them by allowing a foreign nation to penetrate the walls of Jerusalem and kill people to destroy architecture, including beautiful facilities like the temple, and then to take many of those Jewish people back to Babylon as slaves and as captives in a foreign land. And so Jeremiah is writing. It's interesting because he's writing at a couple of levels. He's writing in one level to represent the sorrow and grief of the people. He's also writing personally, as we saw in this chapter, and one of the things I want you to see as we've studied this book, and it's part of the reason I wanted to study the book, is to recognize the nature of grief and, and lament. Certainly we, we lament and grieve when uh, things that are sad happen, like you know the, the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or, or a relationship or something like that. But, but really the, the, the grief that, that this book is trying to move us toward is yes it's the lament over destruction and captivity and death and but it but it's all pointing towards a lament that ought to lead to repentance and lead to confession of sin we're going to see it again this morning that even jeremiah's own grief and tears are ultimately looking for his people to repent and to turn back to the lord now as we continue this series and work our way and we only have a few more Sundays in this semester and we'll be starting a new study in the spring but one of the things I want to do before we conclude Lamentations is to talk to you about the nature of lament and grief um, I'm going to do a message in a couple of weeks called when is sadness sinful uh, because there is a, a sinful sadness believe it or not 
and uh, not sadness is not always a good thing, and it's not always a neutral thing even. And uh, but one of the things I want to talk about is just how when when the Bible instructs us to lament, it's not saying lament just because there's sad things happening. Usually when the Bible is instructing us to grieve and lament, it's because of our own sin that is an occasion for repentance and seeking of forgiveness. So um, it's really interesting things here. And uh, we'll uh, have, like I said, we'll have a few more Sundays to kind of pull all these out. But for today, that, that's what the book is about. We find ourselves in Lamentations chapter 3 as um, Jeremiah continues. And you'll remember that this, the first part of this chapter has started with his own personal grief and sorrow. In fact, he's lost his bearing a bit on who God is. In chapter uh, 3, verses 1 to 18, we see Jeremiah in what we might call spiritual depression or spiritual uh, hopelessness. And then in chapter 3, verses 19 and following, Jeremiah begins to take his self in hand and remember and recall the nature of God and the character of God. And as he meditates and preaches those truths to himself, we see him reemerge out of that depression in hope and in faith. And then as he goes on to talk about that, he recalls that God is not ultimately going to reject his people forever in their discipline, that he will once again show mercy. And then we looked at three questions that are really the center point of the book um, in verses 37, 38, and 39. We looked at those as uh, questions to ask in grief. And then uh, the response of repentance is what the people really need and what Jeremiah is praying for. So we'll pick it up here in chapter 3. Verse 39, Jeremiah writes rhetorically, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. We lift up our hearts and our hands toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you, God, have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and have not spared You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us mere offscurring and refuse in the midst of the people. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have befallen us. Devastation and destruction. Verse 48, my eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes pour down unceasingly without stopping. Until the Lord looks down and sees from heaven. My eyes bring pain to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. And we'll stop right there. Um, So as Jeremiah is coming out of this section where he's talked about God's sovereignty over circumstances, God's sovereignty over people, he asks that question, why should we complain if we are feeling the negative consequences of our sin um, you know, that's interesting, right? Isn't that what we do? Sometimes we make bad decisions and then we complain about them. And what Jeremiah is saying is that makes no sense. When you make bad decisions, you need to repent. That's the appropriate response and turn back to the Lord. And so he calls the people uh, to do that. Here's those three questions. This is by way of review, not, not in your notes yet, but this is by way of review. Does anything happen apart from the Lord's command? That's 37. God is sovereign over people. Isn't it true that both good and hard times come from God? God is sovereign over circumstances. And then why should I complain when I suffer for my sin? Remember we talked about two types of complaining. Uh, there's sinful complaining and godly complaining. And uh, that's important to see. Again, this is not in your notes. This is just review. But if you missed last week, uh, a really interesting part of this 
<clears throat> is just recognizing the role of complaining uh, in the Bible. Most of our complaining is sinful because we are uh, not happy about the way God's running His universe and we express that. Uh, there is a godly complaining, which is just meaning an expression of grief. And when we pour out our heart to God or we cast our burdens on the Lord, those can be godly responses. So we want to avoid sinful complaining, obviously, but a, a godly expression of grief to God is, is a good thing. Okay, so, um, and then this is the repentance part here. So let's get us back here to where we were. Uh, okay, here's our next section here, starting in 43. Uh, Jeremiah comes back to expressions of his sorrow. Look at verse 43 with me. Uh, you have covered yourself with anger and have pursued us. You have slain and have not spared. In this section, God, uh, Jeremiah is again recounting um, the horrors of God's discipline against Judah. And we see some of those things there in verse 43. You've slain and not spared. You've covered yourself with a cloud. So, so God is uh, not intervening, as it were, even when the people are crying out to him because they're not crying out in repentance. Uh, God is not responding to them. Uh, he talks about how um, in the sight of the people, uh, they are like refuse, um, that the enemies have have won, in a sense, panic, verse 47, devastation and destruction. So we see again God's discipline against Judah there and uh, as a rehearsal of some of the things that the previous chapters have talked about. And then in 48 to 51, Jeremiah again tells us about his sorrow over this. Remember, this is the most personal of the five chapters. And Jeremiah says, I've, I've been crying and weeping in sorrow and grief because of all of this. Verse 48, my eyes run down with streams of water because of the des- destruction of my daughter, the daughter of my people. And then 49, 50, and 51 is a, uh, a unit here with a, the center point of the unit pointing to verse 50. So 49 says, I'm weeping without ceasing. 51 says, I'm weeping. My, my eyes hurt. I've been crying so much. And Jeremiah says, I'm going to weep. But, but notice, Notice what his weeping, his grieving is not to no purpose. And this is one of the things I want to point out to you probably in next week, uh, um, the, the next uh, Sunday school message on Lamentations, is that remember, grieving and sorrow is not an end in itself. So when you hear in the Bible, grieve, lament, don't think I'm just supposed to grieve and lament because that's a good thing to do. Grieving and lamenting is supposed to move us towards something. And right here, what, what Jeremiah is saying is, my grief and my lamentation to God is a means of asking God to intervene and to work. Um, grieving and, and his crying, his weeping, he says, I, I'm going to pour out my heart to God until God acts. Verse 50, until the Lord looks down and sees from heaven. That, that's an old expression in the Bible that means, God, not, not that God you know, isn't paying attention and he's like, oh, look down there, right? God always knows what's going on. But what, what he means by that is, I'm going to weep and grieve and pour out my heart to God until God responds uh, to what uh, I'm concerned about in that. So uh, he's confident that God's going to do that. And then we see those purposeful tears as we mentioned here, that he's praying, looking for God to respond. 
Okay, so we again see Jeremiah's sorrow expressed here. Some of these are themes that we've seen before, so we'll just kind of keep moving here. Notice in verses 52 and following now, Jeremiah is going to look back to the past. And this is hard to see, but what he's going to do is he's going to look backward to a season uh, prior in the past, and he's going to talk about um, some of his past deliverances. And you say, what do we mean? Look back at verse 52. He says, My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They have silenced me in the pit and have placed a stone on me. Waters flowed over my head. I said I am cut off. And yet I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. You drew near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Verse 58, O Lord, you have pleaded my soul's cause. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen my oppression. Judge my case. Let's just stop right there. Do you Look up for a second. Do you remember what he's talking about? There's a historic event that Jeremiah is alluding to here back uh, that we read about in his book, the book of Lament, the book of uh, Jeremiah. Do, do you recall the historic event that he's thinking about here? Yeah, yeah, he's put in the cistern, right? Do you guys remember that? And and so back in, uh, let, let's put it up here, uh, Jeremiah 38 verses 4 to 28. We won't turn there right now, but if you go back and read that that account in Jeremiah 38, what happens is. Uh, the, the, the other prophets, the kings, the, the people that are supposed to fear the Lord um, have attacked Jeremiah. Do you remember why they attacked him? Why, he's just doing his job, right? So why did they attack Jeremiah? They didn't like his message. You know, th- that's a great thing to do. Now, I know we never do this. We never do this. When you don't like the message of the person talking to you, attack the person. Right? And again, not that we, we never do that, right? But that's what's going on here. They did not like the message of the prophet. What, what was Jeremiah's message that they didn't like? And this is, I know you know this, but just by way of review. What was, what's that? Repentance. And why didn't they want to repent? They like what? Their power. Okay, they like their power. All right. They love their sin. Yeah. What are they saying? Because these, these are the Israelites. These are the people that received the commandments of God and the history, and these are the, the covenant people. That, why, why would they not want to hear that message? Yeah, yeah, they thought God was blessing. They were doing fine. Uh, they had grown. This is interesting and maybe a little convicting. They had grown comfortable with the idea of worshiping Yahweh and worshiping all these other deities of the surrounding nations. They had grown comfortable with, yeah, our God's important, but we're going to live in a worldly way. And, uh, you know, even though maybe we don't struggle with the same sort of um, polytheistic idolatry that they did, I think we can look and, and see ourselves in the people of Israel just in the sense that, Sometimes it's like we, we want we want to worship the Lord, but we want to live for ourselves. We want to worship the Lord, but we want to be like the world. We want to worship the Lord, but we want to have other pursuits that compete with our allegiance to God. And that's all the things that, that the, the Israelites are doing right now. And so it's like Jeremiah comes and says, um, 
I love you, but um, that's idolatry. Uh, you need to turn to the Lord. It's not okay to worship other deities. It's not okay to work, to, to engage in the world like this. It's not okay to live in sin. And remember that that false worship led to sinful living. Remember they were neglecting the poor. They weren't, uh, they were being unjust with uh, various people, especially, um, you know, the, those people groups that are, uh, um, more prone to vulnerability, the, the orphans, the widows, the, right? And so there's injustice going on, there's ungodliness, there's worldliness. And Jeremiah says, you, you need to repent. This is not okay. And, and then what happens in the middle of all this? Assyria takes out the northern kingdom. And so the southern kingdom of Judah is looking at their, their northern brothers going, God's really serious about this. And, and you'd think that that might have turned their heart, right? Have you ever seen that where, where uh, something happens in your life that, you're go, that you conclude, this is a warning. This is God reminding me of what I need to remember, right? And then, okay, Lord, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again, right? And then we, we talk like that, and then we go right back into our sin. And that's what's going on here with the southern kingdom. So they attacked the prophet because they didn't like his message of repentance. That's absolutely right. And then at one point, what do they do? We're going to kill him. We're, we're, we're sick of this guy. We're just going to kill him. And, and then there, there was an intervention, and they said, well, we won't kill him. We'll just throw him into a pit. We'll throw him into one of these cisterns. Remember back in the day, they, they didn't have big you know, water towers that said Granberry on it, right? They had cisterns. They would dig a big hole in the ground, and they would let like rainwater and river water collect there, and that's where they would use, uh, that's how, how they would store their water. And so they picked one of these cisterns, and they throw Jeremiah into the cistern to, to, to die. And that's why when you look back here, look back at what he's saying in Jeremiah now, in, excuse me, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse uh, 53. They have silenced me in the pit, right? They have placed a stone on me. So you can picture, they throw him in the cistern, they cover it with a stone or some sort of covering, and they leave him down there to die. And then in verse 54, he says, waters float over my head. I said I am cut off. And then 55, what happens? I cried out to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He says, I cried, I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit, literally. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry from help. And as you know, if we go back to Jeremiah 38, God heard and he was rescued out of the pit. So he, he's looking back to that time. Now, now, here, now here's the question we have to ask. Why is Jeremiah reminding us of that here? What's he doing in bringing back this? Why is he recounting a past deliverance? It's a testimony, it's a testimony isn't it? A testimony uh, of God's faithfulness, of his kindness to hear and to listen, right? And why might Jeremiah and the people need to hear this right now, do you think? Yeah. As Jeremiah is remembering past deliverance, Jerusalem is on fire. The temple is a rock heap. There are babies and children slain in the streets. There are soldiers marching teenage boys back to Babylon. And the city is completely in an uproar. 
And Jeremiah, perhaps to remind his own heart and no doubt to remind the people, says, wait a minute, let's not lose our bearing. This is what God said would happen, and it's horrible. But if we will cry out to the Lord in repentance, remember what he's done. Remember what he can do. And, and, and guys, this is, I think this is instructive for us because when we're in the midst of a hard moment, one of the things that helps us is to remember past deliverances. To remember times in the past that God helped. You know, you, you get that unexpected bill, you get that unexpected financial hardship, and you go, oh no, what are we going to do? And then you stop and you're like, you know what, I remember two years ago, we had something really similar happen. And the Lord provided for our needs. And if He provided then, we can have a confidence He's going to provide again. Or that, that season of a, a broken relationship, or overwhelming sorrow, or that medical issue. What, whatever life throws at you, and we go, oh no, what are we going to do? And, and like uh, the people here, they may be losing hope in God, and that's the, that's the time to stop and, and just say, wait a minute, this is our God. Has He helped us in the past? You, you know, remember the hymn, right? Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, right? It, that, that's, what, that's what that hymn is about, is we remember God's work in the past, and that gives us hope in the present. I mentioned this last week, but I don't know if you do this, but one of the things to um, help promote this sort of thing is to keep some sort of record of how God has ministered to you, answered prayer, delivered you in some hardship. And just keep a record of that. Because I don't know about you, I forget that really easily. Do you do that? You know, it might be last week that God worked. And in, in, my, in my crisis this week, I don't remember last week. I'm just so focused on today. So sometimes it can be helpful to do things like that, to document God's deliverances. And then when something happens, we can go back to that prayer journal or back to that source and say, hey, wait a minute, I've, I've got a whole life of, of testimony of God's kindness to me, and this is just the next chapter. And to remember, how many, just, I'm curious, how many do something like that? Any of you, you do the keep a prayer journal or something like that? Okay, good, you're kind of... No, be, be sure, right? Be, 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 be proud about it, okay? Okay. Um, but that's a great thing to do, and I think that's what Jeremiah is illustrating for us, is in present crises, that's a time to remember past deliverances as a means of retaining our hope. So he cries out to God, verse 55 there, recounting this situation, and God responds. Look at this. Verse 59, O Lord, you have seen my oppression, judge my case, you have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. Notice the repetition there. The lips of my assailants and their whispering are against me all day long. And by the way, he's not talking about Babylon there. Who's he talking about? The kings of Israel, the prophets of Israel, the, the mighty men, the elders. He's talking about God's covenant people here who had <clears throat> turned on him. Verse 63, look on their sitting and their rising. I am their mocking song. Remember he said that earlier in the chapter. You will recompense them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. 
You will give them hardness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them for under the heavens of the Lord. So it ends on a very somber note that God is going to hear, God is going to rescue, just as He did in the past, that those who refuse to repent will be destroyed, but those who turn back, that there is hope. So we've seen, uh, again, something of um, similar themes here. Now, now, I was looking at, this is one of the, the takeaways, okay? I want you to just, just, let's come up for air for a moment from the details here, and just think about chapter 3 as a whole. Chapter 3 is really interesting. And if you think about it, if, if the whole book is something of a mirror, that the first part of the book kind of mirrors the second part of the book, chapter 3 is the center point, the most important part. Even chapter 3 is in itself a mirror, right? You say, what do you mean by that? Well, we'll notice how the chapter has given us two different perspectives on Jeremiah's affliction. In the first part of chapter 3, remember, Jeremiah is viewing God as responsible for his affliction, accusing him of wrongdoing, and losing faith and hope in him. You remember that, right? That spiritual depression section, chapter 1 to 18. Now, flip it around, and let's think about what Jeremiah has just told us in the last section of chapter 3. In these final verses, Jeremiah reinterprets some of these same afflictions, but this time with a more biblical perspective that views God as sovereign over his enemies and gracious to deliver him when he cried out for help. Isn't that interesting? It's like the first part of the book, his perspective is wrong, he's accusing God and hopeless. The second part of the book, he's reinterpreting those afflictions, this time in faith, and confident that God is going to deliver him. And, and I, I think that's, again, designed to point back to that center part of chapter 3, right? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, His compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. That, that it's that, that wonderful part of chapter 3 that is the difference maker. When hard things come in your life and my life, who we're thinking about in terms of God's character, who we're turning to in terms of God's person, what we're meditating on in terms of our interpretation of the situation, that is the crucial piece that allows us to maintain hope in hard things. But do you see that? Do you see how his perspective changes? And I think, again, that's part of why the book is written, is to help us to see that. Okay, so that is chapter 3. That is uh, the most important section, I think, in the book. Let's turn the page and get our feet wet, at least a little bit today, in chapter 4. Chapter 4. Now, again, following this idea that the first half of the book mirrors the second half of the book, what we're going to see in chapter 4 is very similar to chapter 2. And uh, so what I want to do is just show you some of those same themes that we looked at in chapter 2, and then I want to put a particular spotlight on a couple of themes that are new, or at least Jeremiah presents them as something to pay attention to, okay? Well, notice... uh, Whoa. (laughs) Let's just finish class quickly. Um, Let's just notice some familiar themes here that we've seen in those first two chapters already. First of all, the the theme of the horror of destruction. We saw this in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. How? How does the chapter start? With a question again, right? Remember chapter 1, how? Chapter 2, how? Chapter 4, how? 
This puts us back in that realm of how can this happen, right? That, that the emotion of grief, the emotion of shock, how the dark, how dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. What's he talking about there? The gold and the precious stones from what? The temple. Can you imagine that? You're just, you're walking in the alley of Jerusalem and there's a piece of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, you're, you're, you're fleeing the city. There's dead bodies everywhere. And oh, look, there's one of those great majestic pillars from the, the Solomon's temple. And, and what, that's what he's saying. He's like, What's going on? There's these precious stones, this beautiful gold, this uh, the, the architecture, the, the uniqueness of that place called the temple. And he says, you can find ruins of the temple at the corner of every street. That's, a, again, the, the shock of what's happened as the Babylonians have destroyed. Verse 2, the precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen jars the work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like ostriches in the wilderness, the tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Again, we've seen this back in the previous two chapters, but Jeremiah is saying there are little ones in the street. There are babies that are starving, that are going thirsty because there's no provision. One of the things that happens in war is there's no provision for people. And he says, you know, even, even animals care for their young, but here are moms and dads that cannot care for their little ones, and their babies are dying, and their children are starving to death. Verse 5, those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple embrace ash pits, saying Jerusalem was once this great place of, of prestige and prominence and wealth, and, and, and now the, these, Families that were well clothed are now in desolation and rags and ash pits. Verse 6, For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. Okay, so we, we get something of the, um, uh, again, just, just the horror of war. Verse 9, Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for the lack of the fruits of the field. Verse 10, the hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction, the destruction of the daughter of my people. Uh, in, in the horror of war, in the horror of babies that die, children that die of starvation and, and hunger, um, Moms and dads are forced to take their dead children as food, is what Jeremiah is talking about here. And that just, that just is horrible even to say. But that's what's going on in the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity. So Jeremiah reminds us of the horror 
of destruction of what's happened here. He also reminds us, starting in verse 11, that this, this horrible destruction is the act of God's discipline, right? This is God's work. Verse 11, the Lord has accomplished His wrath. He has poured out His fierce anger. He has kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. Down to verse 13, or uh, excuse me, verse 16. Uh, the presence of the Lord has scattered them. He will not continue to regard them. He did not honor the priests. They did not favor the elders. Jeremiah reminds us, as, as horrible as this is, this is simply God doing what he's been saying he would do if the people did not repent. And you say, why on earth is this even in our Bibles? Why would God keep this here? We talked about it a few weeks ago. This is, guys, this is here in our Bibles as a reminder, as a theological exclamation point that our sin deserves horrible destruction. That's what's going on here. What actually happened physically to the nation of Israel as an expression of God's judgment and discipline is a reminder that this is what all of our sin deserves. And, and the graphic language used here reminds us how horrible our sin ought to be in our own minds. Notice also, thirdly, the sins of the prophets and the priests. Look back at verse 13. Because of the sins of her prophets... And the iniquities of her priests who have shed in their midst the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind in the streets. They were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments. Depart unclean, they cried of themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. And so they fled and wandered. Men among the nations said, they shall not continue to dwell with us. It's interesting. What, what Jeremiah is doing here is he's giving us an illustration of how the priests and the prophets abused people in the city. Remember, the, the, the sin that brought God's destruction here is not just the sin of the people. It's the sin of the kings. It's the sin of the prophets. It's the, the sin of the priests. It's the sin of the elders. The, the leadership of the nation was corrupt. And God is reminding them here that this destruction is in part because the nation's leadership refused to turn back to the Lord and continued in sin. Look at verse 22. This is interesting. And yet, even in the midst of um, the horror, the shock, the, the reminders of God's destruction and, and the, the realities of war, look at this. Verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity has been completed, O daughter of Zion, and he will exile you no longer. Um, this is interesting. The um, and we'll see this as we get into chapter five next time. But even in the, in the the shock and graphic violence recounted in this chapter, what does God say? What's he say? That's right. God says, this is discipline. This is what I said I would do. But it'll be done. And after that, there will be hope again. And uh, that's a reminder that in the midst of 
the grief and sorrow as the people grieve and mourn over what's just happened that God has not forgotten them or abandoned them. And in fact, this is interesting. Look at the very la- the last two verses here. Um, <clears throat> verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, who dwells in the land of Uz. Who's he talking about there? Daughter of Edom. That's not, this isn't the daughter of Judah. Who are we talking about here? Any ideas? What's that? Yeah, the Edomites. It goes back to the time of Esau. So, so what? What people group eventually comes from those folks? What's that? Yeah, the, the Gentiles. Yeah. So, so what? what what Jeremiah is saying here is, do you remember these foreigners, these Gentiles, these pagan people called the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and how they have been allowed to come in and take away the northern kingdom and now the southern kingdom and demolish the whole nation of Israel? He says, rejoice, be glad, right? Um, you won. But wait. But the cup verse 21, will come around to you as well. This is really, really interesting, guys, and you've got to think about this. Jeremiah now turns away from looking at Judah and Jerusalem, and he turns to the Babylonians, and he turns to the Assyrians, and he turns to all these Gentile nations that are, are mocking the Israelites because they're going, I can't believe what just happened. Jerusalem just fell. The temple, Yahweh is defeated. And Jeremiah turns to them and says, Rejoice! But remember, it's coming back on you. It's coming back on you. Just as God used these foreign, Gentile, pagan, idolatrous people as His instruments of discipline, and they're rejoicing. Jeremiah says, Okay, rejoice! He says, Just remember, your day's coming. And the verse... 21, end of verse 21, you will become drunk and make yourself naked. Why? Verse 22, the punishment of your iniquity has been completed, looking at Jerusalem. And then the end of verse 22, but he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, and he will expose your sins. This is interesting. We see this in the prophets. God looks at his people and says, hey, these foreign people are going to come in and they're going to destroy you as my agent. And then God goes to the foreign people and says, um, You shouldn't have done that. And I'm going to bring judgment upon you. Now that's not God playing games with people. What that's saying is God can be both sovereign to use circumstances for His ends while still holding the people that enact those things responsible for their sin. And that's what verses 21 and 22 are really about there. Okay? So we see the horror of destruction... Uh, the destruction as God's discipline, the sins of the prophets, the priests, the hope after the exile, and the punishment of Babylon as representative of, as it says there, the uh, the daughter of Edom, the Gentiles, all these foreign people that have come against the Israelites. Now let's circle back, and I just want to show you some notable themes here that I think are worth looking at in more detail. We've seen all those themes already, but let's look at a couple in particular that are interesting here. Notice verse 6. We read it a moment ago. 
Jeremiah says that Judah's sin was worse than that of Sodom. Verse 6, For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment. You guys remember Sodom way, way back in the book of Genesis? What, what happens in Sodom? What was the destruction like there? What's that? Uh, yeah, incinerating, absolutely complete. You remember, it was, it was fire and brimstone from heaven that annihilated the city. Yes, sir. Oh, really? That's interesting. So, so this is this is horrible, instantaneous, right? And, and he says, just just as Sodom was overthrown in a moment, he says, I want you to know your sin's worse. What, what do you think he means by that? Okay, so, so, so here's the takeaway, guys, and just let, let, this, let this sink in. Um, all sin makes us guilty before God. We understand that. There's, there's no big or little sins. All sin makes us guilty before God. But ev- sometimes in the Bible, God's going to say, this sin is worse for some reason. And you say, okay, so, so why is that? And what he's saying here is the sin of the Israelites is worse than Sodom. Why? Because Sodom represented a foreign people, right? Yes, they lived perversely in in homosexuality and other uh, perversions, but they were pagans. These are the people of God. These are people that have heard the word of God. These are people that have prophets and priests and messengers from God. These are people that have heard from God. And that's, isn't that just sobering? God believes in God's economy, people who have professed faith in the Lord and know His Word and yet reject it are worse offenders than the most perverse pagans we can imagine. I don't think we often think about life like that. I think we look out at the world and we say, oh, that's so horrible, that's so perverse, what horrible people. When what Jeremiah is saying is the bigger sin in God's eyes are those of us that profess the name of the Lord, that have heard the things of God and have refused to repent. So that, that, that's, a, that's a... I need to do some heart work to let that reality reorient that. Um, We are people of great stewardship, aren't we? We have the promises of God. We have the Word of God. We have great teaching. You can can get on your phone and listen to John Piper 24 hours a day. That's our generation. And therefore, we have a greater accountability to live in light of the things that we know because God has allowed us to know those things and to walk in unrepentance and even rejection. Ultimately, rejecting the Lord is the greater offense. So let's, let's, just, let's just take that into the week this week. I know that's not a fun thing to think about. But let's just take that into the week and say, am I viewing my sin as worse than all the stuff that goes on out there because I know better. 
and because I've been given so much in God's kindness and mercy. I think that's a, a notable theme worth thinking about. Here's another one. War is horrible. War is horrible. And, and we've seen this. Um, infants starving. Infants dying because of lack of water and food. The cannibalism. Um, of moms and dads who are boiling their own children because they have nothing else to eat. Um, and again, th- th- those are in our Bibles, not just to make our stomachs turn. Those are there to say this was absolutely, unspeakably uh, horrific. And as a reminder that that's what sin deserves. Um, can we say it like this? Your sin, my sin, ought to turn our stomachs in terms of how terrible it is. And um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a just a a, a day you can't even think about. Um, but it's there for our benefit, isn't it? Our consideration. Here's a third thing, and this, this hits close to home for me and for those of us that lead. You may be an Awana leader. Uh, you may be a Sunday school teacher. You may be an elder or a deacon. Um, you, you may not have a title, but all of us lead in some way. And I think those of us that have more formal roles of leadership need to be sobered by this last point here, verse 13. Because of the sins of her prophets... And the iniquities of her priests who were unjust, right? They shed in their midst the blood of the righteous. Um, It's interesting that several times in this lament, God calls out the spiritual leaders and says, you're more responsible. Um, One of my mentors used to say that, that elder pastors are not called to a higher standard. They're called to a higher accountability to the same standard of righteousness. And I think that's accurate. Um, Those of us that are in roles of leadership in one form or another are called to a greater accountability to be examples and to be those who exemplify the things that we teach and share with others. And that part part of the shock and awe of this day is God saying to the leaders, not only were you not shepherding the people and not correcting the people and not intervening with the people, you were leading the charge in sin. Like people, like priests, right? And um, leadership is a great task, a great responsibility. Dads, you and I lead in our homes. Uh, ladies, you lead with your families and your, with your children if you have children in the home. Again, we have roles here in the church. Um, and we need to remember that as leaders, we're called to a great accountability uh, in that. Um, so I think, I think that's a good reminder too, just to, to be careful how we lead. Uh, you remember what uh, Paul told Timothy. He said, pay close attention to yourself and also to what you teach. Because if what you teach is out of alignment with yourself, um, your influence is going to be pretty scattered, isn't it? 
hypocritical. So those are good reminders, guys, um, from these really, really hard passages from the Bible. Uh, let's pray and ask God to, to help us to put these into action. Uh, Father, we uh, this is one of those chapters that's hard to read, and yet we thank you for the promise of your mercy and deliverance. Lord, I pray whether it's a role of leadership, whether it's how we view our own sin, uh, that you would sober us in our thinking in light of what we've read today. Father, might our own sin turn our stomachs. Um, might our evaluation of our own sin exceed greatly the sin of what we see non-believers doing in the world. And I pray, Lord, that in whatever place that we lead Uh, that you would help us to be careful about that influence, to pay close attention to ourself and our example. Um, Father, even if it's simply sharing the gospel or being an example with somebody at work or somebody in our family that doesn't know the Lord, maybe we don't have a title of leadership, but maybe it's just the fact that you've put us in the life of another unbeliever and you call us to be faithful. Um, Father, we... uh, we need to be faithful in this hour. We, we need to stand, stand firm on your word as the world grows dark, darker. And so we pray for your mercy. Uh, give us grace to stay the course and to be examples. Lord, we know we won't be perfect. We, we know we will have many occasions for repentance. But help us to be a repenting people and an authentic people that lives our faith uh, in genuineness. Um, And Lord, would you use us, use our church, use our individual lights and witnesses, use our families um, to accomplish your your purposes. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that this book doesn't leave us without hope, that you're a God whose loving kindnesses never cease, your compassions never fail, your mercies are new every morning, and so we declare, great is your faithfulness. Um, Do your work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.